0: In 1989, a Philadelphia financial analyst bought an old painting, a depiction of a country scene, for $4 at a flea market in, in Adamstown, Pennsylvania, mostly because he liked the frame and wanted to use it. And as the buyer was investigating a tear in the canvas, the frame fell apart in his hands when he attempted to detach it from the painting, leading him to discover a folded document which appeared to be an old copy of the Declaration of Independence stored between the canvas and its wood backing. And after a friend who collected Civil War memorabilia advised him to have it appraised, he learned that the document was in fact a rare original Dunlap broadside, one of 500 official copies from the first printing of the Declaration of Independence in 1776. Only 23 similar copies were known to exist before this find, of which a mere two were privately owned. This rare document was offered for sale by Sotheby's on June 4, 1991, and the fine fetched even more than had been anticipated. The 800000 to $1.2 million estimate turned into $2.42 million by the end of the auction The auctioneer, who was a senior vice president of Sotheby's, said this was a record for any printed Americana. It was far and away the highest price for any historical Americana ever. The copy that was sold is a crisp, clean broadside creased on long lines where it had been folded. It was printed by John Dunlap on July 4th, 1776, carrying news of America's independence to the citizens of the 13 colonies. It is now one of 24 known copies and one of only three remaining in the private hands. The document itself was again put up for sale in June of 2000 where it fetched $8.14 million. It was purchased by Norman Lear who took it on a three and a half year exposition to show it off across the country. And all of this because a seller didn't realize the importance of a $4 painting. Now I'm afraid that this morning we can all identify with the seller as being guilty of not valuing something because of its importance. We view things as common or ordinary, and therefore we lay a certain value of importance on it. And most oftentimes, we miss something, because it's more important than we consider. But yet this morning the author of Hebrews in this chapter lays out for us something important we need to discuss. And it is this, that we must realize how important Jesus is as our high priest. And I want to give you three reasons why we should realize the importance of Christ as our high priest. The first reason comes from verses 1 and 2 and is this, that Jesus, our high priest, has unique functions. Jesus, our high priest, has unique functions. Notice he says in verse 1, now this is the main point of the things that we are saying. The author here wants once, once Jesus as high priest to be known to all believers. He's a good preacher here. He uses this word, the main point, as a, a brief statement summarizing what they've discussed so far. And this discussion has started all the way back in chapter 4. If you, if you put your finger here in chapter 8, go back to chapter 4, verse 14. It says, Seeing then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus is the Son of God. That's where the discussion started. So he spent almost four chapters with some breaks in between talking about Christ, our high priest. And so he's using that statement in verse 1. that We have such a high priest to get his readers to understand how important Jesus is. All of this discussion on the Melchizedek, the Levitical priesthood, God's promises, all of this has led to this point, to notice that we have such a high priest, one Jesus Christ. Now what he's been doing is what I would, I would draw your, an illustration of, of writing papers. If you remember your high school or college days, you were assigned probably a term paper to write for a particular class. And in doing so, you started out with a thesis, right? You had a thesis you had to, to prove. And most oftentimes, if you were trained like I was, it was stated in your introduction. And the rest of the body of your paper was designed to prove your thesis, right? And you had to make points, you had to prove your thesis. From looking at external sources to arguing from a perhaps philosophical or logical arena your main body of your paper was to argue your thesis. For example, uh, one of them that I had to write ended up being 15 to 16 pages in, in college um, was actually when I was in France. And the, the thesis or the topic you had to discuss was the love and the holiness of God. The question was, which conditions the other? So the, the idea is, which is the basis for the other? Is the holiness of God basis for his love? Are the two equal? Or is the love of God the basis for his holiness? My position was that God's holiness is the foundation for everything that he does. And so that was my thesis. And the rest of the, the paper, 15 to 16 pages, was spent talking about different passages, looking at different words, proving my point. okay, And then drawing up conclusion at the end. So that's what the author is doing here. He's, he's, he's writing this thesis that he's talked about for about four chapters, and now he comes to summarize it. Here is the main point. And the supports have been discussed. And will we continue to be discussed, because he talks about it even in chapters 9, 10, and we're going to talk about it pretty much till chapter 11. And what's the point? He, put, he points out that Jesus is our high priest now he's our priest now we have such a high priest the verb there we have is present tense and you know from your grammar that it's not future it's not in the past it's in the present. we have christ as our high priest now and for the readers of, of the book of hebrews it was significant because there was a high priest at that time There was someone who held that office in Jerusalem and offered sacrifices, but the intention of the terminology is to show that Christ is greater by using that word such. The word such there shows the exclusivity of Christ as our high priest. And there is no one else who is qualified to function in that way. This is not something that just happens casually or once in a while. But no, we have Christ as our high priest now. But notice also, he, and that phrase would have been sufficient enough, right? You know, we have such a high priest. And he could have gone on. But he does something that's very interesting, is he shows, thirdly, that Jesus is our king high priest. Notice what he says. Who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, he goes on to describe the high priesthood of Christ right now, and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of the Majesty in the heavens. What does the word "seated" mean? It refers to the process of taking a seated position and staying there. You know, you're all you are all seated in pews this morning, right? Chairs, um, but you're going to get up, and some of you are saying, "Hopefully soon, uh, so you can leave and go home." All right? But Christ, as high priest, king high priest, is seated and he continues to say, seated. He does not move. we say, well, Pastor, what's the significance of that? The significance of that is found in the next few words at the right hand of the throne of the majesty. That points to a position of authority. And the author of Hebrews will use this concept four times throughout the book. To show that Christ is has kingly authority. Um, other passages you can look at that we, we saw this in chapter one, verse three of Hebrews, where he the author says, Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the th- majesty of the throne, of the majesty on high. Other passages you can look at this concept. Acts chapter seven verse fifty six. Stephen says, "I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand, standing, sitting." The, the idea is that he's, he's solidified his position. Romans eight thirty four, Colossians three one, and the First Peter three twenty two also speak of Christ seated at the right hand of God. So not only is he our high priest, and and again, for us as as 21st century Americans, this is hard to grasp because we don't have that worship system. But for the readers of Hebrews, it was very much present in their minds that he is our high priest. But also he's king. He's in control. He has authority. And this builds off of his argument with Melchizedek because who was Melchizedek? In Genesis 14, he is the king and high priest, both at the same time. So in essence, what he's doing here is he's going back to that argument, looking back to Melchizedek and showing even further that Christ is better than him. He is a king high priest. Notice fourthly that Jesus is the minister of a better worship service. A minister, verse 2, of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. What, what, what is he doing here? He's showing that Christ is a better worship leader. The word minister here has the idea of one who gains in worship service. You know, the examples we could think of in the Old Testament were Levites and priests. You know, they were kind of the ones who directed worship. The New Testament speaks of pastors and teachers as the ones who are leading worship now in the church. And so, by using this phrase, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, he's showing that Christ is the ultimate worship leader. And that's a popular term today is worship leader. It's a title for many um, pastors in different churches worship leader. Well, the worship leader, the ultimate one, is Christ, the high priest. The word sanctuary and tabernacle recall the, the Old Testament sanctuary and instruments of worship denoting that in the author's mind, Christ is the better worship leader because he ministers in the true tabernacle. The word true here means genuine, real. So Christ, our high priest, serves in a genuine worship service that is better than the Old Testament. And he'll describe that here in a minute because it's erected by God or built. That's the idea of the word erected, constructed, God has constructed the perfect worship service, the perfect worship scenario, and Christ is the minister and worship leader. He's perfectly able to render true worship to God, unlike us who are not. And therefore, we need our perfect high priest. And so that leads me to ask you this question this morning. Are you availing yourself of your high priest? Christ is our high priest now, We've talked about that the past few weeks. Are you going to Him? Are you begging Him to intercede on your behalf? Being that He is holy, verse twenty-nine of chapter, 26 of chapter 7, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, has become higher than the heavens. Who's made the sacrifice once for all. Are you making yourself willing to go to Him? And plead your case before him so that he in turn can plead your case before the Father based upon his work. You know, too many Christians today are just satisfied with just Jesus as their Savior. You know, I've got my get out of jail free card, my get out of hell free card. And so that's it. When, when it comes to life and circumstances, they're satisfied to just whip that out and say, I'm, I'm good to go. But when I look at These verses and the verses that we've discussed, I I see a greater need on you and I to go to him as our high priest. The one who intercedes for us before the throne, right? The one who, who has paid the ultimate price, given us access to God. And too many of us settle for the status quo. Too many of us look to our salvation as the only relationship we have with christ i hope you're not there i hope you're you're running to your high priest the great worship leader so that you may have access to god second reason i would give you that the author lays out for us this morning of of why we must view jesus as important in his work as our high priest, is that Jesus has a unique realm of ministry. Verses 3 through 6, For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. Now, it seems here that verse 3 is a repetition. The author is repeating some of what he's already discussed, just pointing out that Christ is the high priest because He's offered something. The high priests offered something. They had a job to fulfill. And Christ does the same. He fulfilled this requirement in verse 27 of chapter 7. Where it says, Who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices for his own sins and then for the people's? For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. He's fulfilled that requirement. So now he has this unique ministry which he'll, he'll discuss later on in these few verses but his ministry exists in heaven. And so he argues from the lesser to the greater here. Verse 4, For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. If Christ's ministry was centered on earth, he wouldn't need to be around, because there were still high priests at that time who were offering gifts and sacrifices daily. I'm sure the readers of, of Hebrews were thinking about this as they were reading knowing that perhaps the previous day they had gone by the temple and see all this occurring. And so his ministry is greater because it's not on this earth. It's in, it's in heaven. And those who minister here on this earth, the high priests and priests who ministered in the sacrificial system in the temple, were doing so in a place that was just a copy of of the greater ministry in heaven. That's the word word copy here in verse 5, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Refers to something that appears at a later time. And the word shadow refers to a mere representation of something that is real. What is the copy and the shadow? It is the the divinely instruction, uh, sanctioned tabernacle. And verse 5 there as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle for he said see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain so again the author goes back to the Old Testament he uses Exodus 25 verse 40 to show that the current the current worship system that was put in by the Mosaic law was sanctioned by God God said you've got a copy of it here's you know I've shown you on the mountain Ten Commandments scenario but yet, that was just a shadow or a copy of something that was greater. So here's, here's the lesser copy was the tabernacle and the temple. The greater is the heavenly tabernacle and true sanctuary. So his ministry is not of this earth, it is in heaven. Christ doesn't need to be on this earth to minister as our high priest. He has the perfect worship sanctuary in heaven. And his ministry centers on the new covenant. Verse 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. So using those two words, but now, the author now turns to the, reader, the reader's attention, our attention, to now focusing, okay, what is the current ministry of Christ? What is he doing now as our high priest? His ministry is based upon what he has gained. That's the word obtained. It means to experience something, to, to obtain or gain or find experience in. And the grammar of the word emphasizes the work of Christ on the cross. And as our high priest, he has obtained what? A more excellent ministry. What does that word more excellent mean? It means pertain to being different with focus on value. At, or in other words, we can say outstanding or excellent So what he's doing here is he's contrasting the ministry of the Old Testament priests to the current one of Jesus. And by doing so, he's showing that the Old Testament priests had a valuable ministry. They had an important work, didn't they? They were interceding for the Jewish nation before God. They were doing all the sacrifices and offerings and gifts for a purpose, and it was valuable. But what Christ has gotten through his work as high priest is a greater ministry, a greater work. Let me illustrate it this way. Gold and silver are both valuable, right? But which is more valuable? Gold. Right, gold is more valuable. Currently, uh, I looked at the prices the other day. I think per ounce gold is at like $1,700, $1,800. Silver is at like $2,300. Or not $2,300, $2,300. So there's, there's, there's a value system, Right? Silver has value. It does. And well, one time, our currency in our nation was backed by silver. But it was replaced because gold is more valuable. Gold has more content to it. Gold is more uh, precious, as it were. And even though silver has value and, and it can still be used today, many many people collect it and hold on to it and use it as currency, gold has more value because of its backing to our currency and it's used in other areas. So silver is valuable, but gold is more valuable. So that's what the author is doing. He's saying, Old Testament priests, worship system, good, valuable. Christ, more valuable. Better. And that hits you become a mediator. What's that word, mediator, mean? means one who mediates between two parties or comes, meets with two parties to remove a disagreement or reach a common goal. The illustration I might use is as we're coming up on uh, World Series just finished this past week. The Braves won, uh, which I'm excited for them. Didn't like them in the 90s, uh, but I'm, they are to be congratulated. They won the World Series. Now we're getting into the offseason for baseball. And one of the things that ha- happens during off-season is arbitration. That's when those players who are on minor con- I shouldn't say minor contracts, but lesser contracts come up and meet with their teams to negotiate for a better deal. And oftentimes, when they, can, when they meet, reach an impasse, they call in an arbitrator, a third person, to mediate the situation. And sometimes... That third person rules in favor of the player and says to the team that owns the player's rights, you have to give them a better deal. Or sometimes he comes back to the player and says, you know what, you got to stick with your original deal and settle with what they're, get, they're offering you. They're, they're, you. You can't go for any more. And what the mediator says, the arbitrator says is law, basically. It's what the player and the team has to go by. They agree to go into arbitration, to negotiate a contract, and whatever the arbitrator decides, whether in favor of the team, whether in favor of the player, has to be agreed to. Well, that's what Christ does. He mediates, he he brokers an agreement between God and us for the covenant, of a better covenant. And notice, notice what this covenant is established on. It's established on better promises. The word "establish" here means to, to enact or to act on, on the basis of legal sanction being founded by law. And what he's doing here is he's showing that the new covenant, the better covenant, which we'll discuss here next, is better because of what it's based on. It's not based on the law. It's based on the promises to Abraham. Now, now did God make promises to the nation through Moses? Yes. said, if you, you obey me, you... I will bless you. If you, you disobey me, I will curse you. I will uh, bring judgment upon you. Were there any of those promises made to Abraham? No. God made promises to Abraham that concerned his future heritage. He said, I will bless you, and I will, I will, the nations shall bless you, and your seed shall be innumerable as the sand of the sea. And all these positive things come out to Abraham and Abraham believed God and God counted it to him for righteousness. So the promises, the covenantal promises to Abraham are what this newer covenant, this better covenant are established on. Not the, the conditional covenant of the Mosaic law, but the unconditional covenant of the Abrahamic agreement. That is who Christ, that is what Christ brokers or Christ makes sure that it is fulfilled we enter into that covenant with God and he is the mediator he is the one who makes sure it gets done so let me lead me to ask a question this morning as we think about the new covenant again we'll discuss it here in a minute are you looking forward to what God has in store for you for eternity You see, this new covenant, which we'll talk about just here in a second, has both present and future elements to it. And Christ has come to broker that agreement, to make sure that God holds up his end of the bargain. Which will God hold up his end of the bargain for us? The answer is yes, he will. And he's made promises to us. And are we looking forward to those promises, looking forward to what he has in store for us in eternity through this new covenant, through his word? Again, many Christians today are just satisfied with the present. They're satisfied with their lives now. There's, there's, a, there's a, a modern day preacher who, who continually uses this phrase. He says, Live in your best life now. When I look at the Bible, I, I, especially in this context like this, I see that our best life is not now, it's in the future, it's in eternity. And we need to be living for that now. Looking forward to what God has for us in the future and living that out now. And so I ask you this morning, are you looking forward to what God has in store for you in the future? And are you telling others as you go along the way? Third reason that why we must view Jesus as important as our high priest is that Jesus has a unique agreement to to distribute. Now we're going to get into, okay, what is this? Agreement that God, through Christ, has given to us, and Christ has brokered. It's all based upon a new covenant. But before he gets into that, he says, look in verse seven. He says, "For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would be no place no, then no place would have been sought for a second. What's he saying there? He said, "The first covenant, which has been very familiar to the author of Hebrew's readers, they know the law. They know what the law says. He says it wasn't sufficient for God's purposes. The word faultless here has the idea of a blameless, not being able to point out a, an, an, uh, a weakness or inherent quality that is flawed. If the law was faultless, there would be no need for a better covenant. But because it is fault, faulty there is a need for a second covenant. Now what he's doing here is he's logically arguing that the first covenant had faults and therefore needs to be replaced. Now look, now look at the next phrase in verse 8. Because finding fault with them. The word finding fault means to, to lay the blame. And where does he lay the blame? This is interesting. Where does he lay the blame? It's not with the law itself. It's with those who are under the law, the recipients themselves. We can go back to Galatians chapter 3, verses 17 through 26, where Paul argues this point as he's talking about the law and how it's been fulfilled and what its relationship is to us as believers. Galatians chapter 3, let me just go back there and look at the first few verses of that section. Chapter uh, 3, verse uh, 17 through 26. But um, they zealously court you, but, no for, uh, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. But it's good to be zealous in a good thing always, not only when I'm present with you. So he talks about just this, this idea of... Oh, I read the wrong passage. I'm sorry. Uh, verse 17. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before... By God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect, for if the inheritance, inheritance is of the law it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. so what does Paul say? He says the covenant, if the promise was in the covenant, in the first covenant, then there would be no need for for us to look for a different promise, but God gave Abraham a promise, and therefore that is superior verse twenty one is this Law, then, against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given, which could not have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But it wasn't. But the Scripture has confined all under sin, that by the promise, but the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith, which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, The law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified, not by the law, but by faith. So the law was not faulty. It had a purpose. Those who were faulty were those who were under the law, who consistently failed and disobeyed and had to be made right again and again and again and again. The law was insufficient. But yet, this new covenant—notice what it does. This new covenant provides forgiveness and an intimate relationship with God. Because finding fault with them, He says, in the following verses, all the way down to verse twelve, is a quote from Jeremiah thirty-one verses thirty-one through thirty-four. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. If you go back to Jeremiah 31, the context there of that passage is God's promises to bring the nation back from exile, to restore them. The repeated uses of the phrase, the days are coming, in that day, I will, in that passage, point to the futuristic fulfillment of God's word. God promised to bring the nation back from exile, restore them to the land, give them hope for the future for their children, give them a purpose, and forgive their sins. And including this reference here, the author, what the author is doing is is showing the components of the new covenant, which are exceptional. In verses eight and nine, he notices that it is a new covenant and is not like the old one. Notice what God says: "Behold, the days are coming that will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of." Judah, not according to the covenant which I made. So it's something totally different. It's not like the law that God made with Israel as they came out of the land of Egypt. Notice also that it, the knowledge of God will no longer be external, but internal. That we'll create a relationship, an internal relationship that creates a new people. Verse 10 for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. So what's he saying? God's saying in Jeremiah 31, and the author's saying here by this quote, in, here in Hebrews chapter 8, that God will no longer be known by rules and laws. His knowledge will be internal and will be available to all. Do you know how the Jews today know who God is? They know Him by the law. They know Him by by the commandments. That's how they know God. You go to Israel today, you walk around and you see the phylacteries, you see all the garments, you see all the, the Jews doing all these pious deeds. Why do they do that? Because their knowledge of God comes according to the law. But God says in Jeremiah 31, and the author of Hebrews is using that quote, that God's knowledge will no longer be external, but will be internal. A personal knowledge. I will write my law on their minds, and I will write it on their hearts. That's what God promises in the New Covenant. Notice also that God chooses to forgive and be merciful to overlook the deliberate rebellion of his children. Verse 12. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Quite a significant thing for God to write to the nation of Israel in Jeremiah 31. Because what had they done? They continually rebelled against God. They had built up altars to foreign idols. They had sacrificed to pagan gods in barbaric ways trying to worship someone else. And God's name had been drugged through the mud and and been violated time and time again, yet God says, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lost deeds I will remember no more. If that isn't the definition of forgiveness, I don't know what is. God chose and chooses to forgive man's deliberate rebellion against him. So the presence of this quote from Jeremiah 31, notes that the New Covenant is just not only for the nation of Israel, but incorporates non-Jews as well. And who are non-Jews? That's us. And there are some aspects of this covenant that are present today, right? When you and I came to know Christ as Savior, was it and is it still through laws and regulations? The answer is no. It's written on our hearts, right? It's written on our minds. God's Word is there physically in front of us through your Bible, but also internally. And so the knowledge of God is not known through the teaching. It is known through an internal relationship with God. So that part of the covenant is present today. And we indeed have received forgiveness of sins, And our sins and our lawlessness God has chosen to forget. So there are aspects of this covenant that are already being fulfilled now, but there are also aspects that will be fulfilled in the future. For example, none of them shall teach his neighbor, verse 11, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. Is that true today? No, not really. There's still a work to be done for everyone to know the Lord from the least of people to the greatest of people. And that will occur in, occur in eternity. So there's the already and not yet. If you ever hear that term, that's what it means. There are aspects of the New Covenant that are here today for us as believers that are still some that are waiting to be fulfilled. Already, but not yet. So if I've confused you enough, let's move on to the last point here. That the presence of the new covenant nullifies the old. So wrapping it up here in verse 13, he says, in that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is being coming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. What does the word obsolete mean? It means to treat something as old and no longer of any value. So don't let anybody tell you you're obsolete, okay? You're not, all right? The very presence of the new covenant does this. Because the new covenant is in place, already not yet, the old one is obsolete. It's no longer of any value. And it's becoming obsolete. What does that word mean? It means to become old with the emphasis on being useless. I would use the illustration of a junkyard. Why do junkyards exist? Because there are useless things that people throw away. You walk into a junkyard and what do you find? Rusty old metal, broken pieces of plastic, broken pieces of wood. Why are they there? Because they have no use anymore. They're just there to rot and just to take up space. And and maybe they have a recycling value. It may be. But for the most part, junkyard is junk. There's junk and junk. There's no value there. That is the Mosaic Law. That is the Old Covenant. It is of no use because Christ has fulfilled it. And it is, and it is growing old. It, that, the word growing old is, is the process of aging. It's growing old and it's vanishing away. It's ready to be destroyed. And for the readers of the, of the author of Hebrews here in this book, that was something that was ever-present on their mind as they saw events unfolding. eventually 70 A.D., The nation would be destroyed and and removed and exiled. The temple would be destroyed. So the new covenant declares that the old one is of no use and is ready to be done away with. So let me ask you this morning, if you've maybe confused you a little bit with the new covenant, let me ask you this morning, are you grateful to God for working through your high priest for your benefit. The new covenant is for you as a believer in Jesus Christ. There are aspects of it that are for us. There are also aspects in it that are for the nation of Israel in the future. But are you grateful that God chose to work through Christ for your benefit? As your high priest, he mediates this new covenant, gives you access to God, writes God's laws on your mind and on your heart's gives you an intimate relationship with Him so that you do not need to know God through a law or a system of sacrifice. You know God personally through His Son, Jesus Christ. Are you grateful to God through working through Christ for your benefit? He's done all of this. Notice, none of this has been done on the basis of our faith. This has all been done by God through Christ as made available to all of us by faith. By faith. And Christ has done all this as high priest. So, the significance of Jesus Christ as our high priest is beyond reckoning. It just blows our minds to think about what he's done for us as our high priest, what he's given to us. And yet, it is vital to our very spiritual lives that we seek to understand this truth. Again, too many people treat Jesus casually, flippantly, He's their get-out-of-hell-free card, but he has done so much more than that as our high priest. And his work is important. I've given you three reasons why we should realize the importance of Christ as our high priest. He has unique functions. He's a a minister of the true tabernacle. He's a perfect worship leader. He has a unique realm of ministry. He's not on earth. He's in heaven. He's leading worship in heaven. He's, he's doing the work of the, high, of the high priest in heaven. And he has unique agreement, agreement to distribute. He's, he's making sure the elements of the new covenant are being fulfilled. So as we face a new week, let's remember his important week, his important work as high priest until we see him forever.